You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Dwight David Eisenhower, he was a man of many talents. Uh, he went to West Point Military Academy. It, was, it is one of the most prestigious military colleges in the world. He uh, was a star running back in high school and in college. His entire family were devout Christians. They spent every morning and every night taking time off to read the Bible together. Eisenhower was famous among his classmates for having an almost perfect memory. They, uh, they would, he would beat his friends so often in poker that they stopped playing with him. In World War II, he became a five-star general and was appointed by the Supreme Allied Commander. He served as the president of Columbia University, and he was the Army Chief of Staff before running for president in a landslide victory over Senator Robert Taft. President Dwight D. Eisenhower was the oldest president at that time. He was a man of experience, of focus, and of discipline. His military experience combined with his political understanding helped the public to trust and lean upon him for two terms. Now. The man who came after him, well, he was much different. Eisenhower's successor was the first president born in the 20th century. He, he symbolized a new type of generation. Eisenhower was the oldest man to become president. His successor was the youngest man to become one. The president after Eisenhower, you see, his parents were extremely wealthy and well-connected politically. Many suspected it was those connections that helped him to become senator and later president. There was a disconnect at first with the public. They didn't trust him. They said, who is this man? Why did we vote for him? He's too inexperienced. He's too young. The public was wary, to say the least. You see, in this passage, we have this man, this king, his name's King David. He was the greatest king Israel had ever known. Under David, there was more unity, there was more prosperity than ever in the history of the nation. He was a man of the people. They knew his background. They knew that he was just a shepherd boy, that he came from nothing. And yet it was his strategic genius it was his combat ability that made him into one of the greatest warriors in their history. He was a man after God's own heart. You see, they saw the faith and sincerity that he had. He was a great man. And yet in this passage here, he is about to die. He lived a long life. He lived a good life. And yet it was his time to pass away. And the people, they were afraid. They were afraid. And so 
In verse 1, he says what everyone else was thinking at that time. He says, Solomon, my son, my successor, whom alone God has chosen, he is young and inexperienced. The Israelites were afraid because, you see, they knew David. They knew his faith. They were led by him. But this successor, this other man, they didn't know if they could trust him. What's interesting is in the church, there's this constant tension that we face. Because in the Bible, God constantly emphasizes community. And we as a church, we constantly say we are in relationship with one another. We need to be together. We need to serve one another. We need to always do these things. Even the church structure is, is that way. The backbone of the church is life groups. In that way, you need to come together. We serve together. Church Sundays are not enough. And so we meet on the weekdays. And we come and we live and we invest in one another. We eat food together. We pray for one another. We cry. We laugh together. We are in community with one another. In the Bible, it's the Trinity. It's what we believe. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in constant relationship with one another. This is biblical community. And yet, the tension comes in when we begin to rely on the people as the end product. For us, I feel like 99% of people connect to God through other people. We have experienced God through others. For many of us, you know, we can read the Bible and it just doesn't connect. It's just words. And yet, there can be that one person who comes to us and they just connect the dots for us. Many times we were touched, we, were, we experienced God, we were saved through a sermon. We can pinpoint an exact retreat. We can pinpoint a counselor, a teacher, a leader, a guide who helped us in that way. But what happens if that person goes away? What happens if, like here, that person passes away? We become anxious, nervous, wondering if we're ever going to experience God in the same way. You know, our, our church has gone through a lot of transition this past year. A lot has changed in a very short amount of time. If, if you've only been here for a couple months, I can guarantee you that if you were here in the beginning of 2018 and you're here today, it is radically different. But one thing that I can promise you moving forward in 2019 is that there will be more changes to come. There will be more things that are different. There will be more things that God is going to shake up. Because for a lot of us, we have been so comfortable in where we've been. For the past however many years, we've been steady and we've been doing the same thing. We have the same group of friends. We have the same people that we hang out with. We have the same roles that we've always been in. And it's been like that for years. And yet all of a sudden, all of this change is starting to happen. And in 2019, all of this change may happen to you as well. And you see, we can start to get nervous. We can start to get uncomfortable. It makes sense for us just to stay in what's comfortable. The Israelites, they understood David. They were comfortable there. They understood what he did. They knew his background. They knew the things that he had accomplished. And yet, change was going to happen. 
It was inevitable. And so they were scared. So in the midst of all of that, and in the midst of all of that fear, all of that anxiety, David says something. Because for David, he knows things are about to change, and they're going to change drastically. He's on his deathbed. He doesn't have very much time. He can't teach Solomon anymore. He doesn't have time for that. He, he can't teach his people anymore. He doesn't have time for those things. The transition is about to happen. And so what he says is, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. And here, the work is great, for the palace will not be for man before the Lord. You see, this is the last chapter of the book. This is the last part of David's life. There's no more after this. And for him, he could spend hours, he could spend lectures, he could spend seminars talking about to the people, oh, this is my successor, this is what he's going to do. He can talk all he wants about Solomon, yet he spends less than a sentence talking about Solomon. He says about Solomon, he is young and inexperienced. That's it. What a terrible way to introduce someone. But that's all he says. But what he spends the rest of the passage on, what he spends almost all the end of First Chronicles on, is the temple. It's the temple. He says, this is how you should build the temple. This is what you should do for the temple. This is what I will do for the temple. And when he meets and talks to Solomon one-on-one -on -one in chapter 28, he doesn't go and talk about, oh, this is what you need to do for Israel. This is how you need to, this is how you need to rule. This is the wisdom. You need. He said, no, no, just this is what you need to do for the temple. This is what you need to do for the temple. Why is it so important? Why is the temple so important? And it's because it holds the Ark of the Covenant. In the beginning of chapter 28, David, he brings the people together and he says this, I have it in my heart to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant is actually really interesting. It was this wooden box covered with gold. Inside were only three things. It was a jar of manna, it was Aaron's rod, and it was the Ten Commandments. On top of the ark were these two golden angels stretched out to one another. You see, this Ark of the Covenant, it was more than just a box. It was the living embodiment of God's presence. And David's one focus, his one desire, was to make sure that there was a home for the ark. You see, he's saying you don't need a person, you don't need a replacement, you just need the presence of God and you'll be fine. But there's something strange about this ark, something really quite strange because I think for a lot of us we know and we, we've heard stories about this ark of the covenant, that the minute you touch it, you would die. Even in, pop, even in pop culture, it, this Ark of the Covenant is really famous. I remember uh, in one of the most disturbing scenes of my childhood, Indiana Jones, he shuts his eyes in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he says, don't look, don't look. And yet the Nazis, they open up the Ark, and I remember their faces starting to melt. It was disgusting, to say the least. 
And I don't know, I don't think that's biblical, to be honest. But the Israelites, they were able to overcome Jericho because of the power that this ark held. Later, the Israelites, they begin to turn away from the Lord, though. After all that they have conquered, after all this ark has, has been able to be a part of them, and yet they turn away from the Lord, they begin to worship other gods, and all of a sudden they see the Philistines coming. They see these Philistines, they see this powerful army, and they remember, they say, oh, oh, I remember the, this ark. It helped us in battle. I think it can help us again. And so they did what they used to do, and they brought the ark out. And they ran out to fight the Philistines. And what happened? They were slaughtered. The Israelites were. They were completely annihilated. And the Philistines, they took the ark. They touched the ark. They did whatever they wanted, and yet nothing happened to them. How strange. How could this one, once great ark of the covenant, this thing that was so powerful, this thing that people relied on, and yet when they lost their faith, when they began to turn to other gods, they went into battle, and this ark just became a box. God's presence is not tied to a box. God's presence is not tied to a person. Your experience with God is not based on a procedure it's not based on this building. It's not based on a person. For a lot of us, we think that as long as we go to church, God, he's going to bless me. You know what? My faith life, that's one other thing. And I'm going to do what I want to do. But as long as I follow steps one, two, and three, then you know what? God, he's going to honor that. He's going to bless me. But when was the last time you came before the Lord and you simply prayed to him saying, God, I want more of you. God, I just, I want more of you. I want to experience you. More than anything else, I want you. Look, I'm not saying praying for things are bad. They're not bad. You should be praying for specific areas in your life. That's, of course, you should be doing that. But do you want those things more than you want God? What happens is you begin to ask God for the things first. And little by little, you begin placing him in a box. You begin to try to control him. You say, God, God I, I want to be more faithful and I want to serve you more if you do this. God, I, I, I'm going to commit more to church. I'm going to commit more to you. I'm going I'm to commit more to my faith life. But God, I, I want this too. God, if you do this, if you accomplish this, if you get me into this school, if you get me this job, if you do these things. And that's where the danger comes in. Because those if things become your God. Those if things become your non-negotiables. Those if things become everything to you. God, he just becomes your genie in a bottle. Let's say that, for example, you're in a relationship with a person and they come up to you and you, got, and you, and you love this person. And they say, you know, hey, I love you. I want to get married. How happy would you be? Your heart begins to flutter. You, your skin begins to get red. And, and you're like, oh, thank you, thank you. And you, say, <laughs> and you say one question. You only do one question, though. You say, why do you love me? 
And you expect some lovey-dovey answer, right? You expect something, you say, oh, I just love you because it's you and, and all that kind of stuff. And yet, what they say is, I love you because from the moment I saw how much money you had in your bank account, man, that was it. I knew it. I knew that was, you were the one for me. I knew from the moment I saw how much you made, man, I just, I grew to love you. How terrible would that be? How absolutely disgraceful. That's not love. That's not love. We, that person begins treating you like an object. That, be, that person begins treating you for the things that you can give to them, not for who you are. And so what would you do? Would you stay in that relationship? Absolutely not. You would leave. We understand how terrible that is, and yet we do the exact same thing when we come before God. God, I, I love you because of what you can give me. God, I love you because of these things, these, these things that you can accomplish in my life. Man, I know that you can do these amazing things, so that's why I'll be with you. God, God is God, but he's also a person. And there's no way that he would honor that. There's no way that he would bless us with that type of mindset. Absolutely not. So what does that mean? That means we need to drop our conditions. That means we need to take away our presuppositions. That means we need to drop all of those things and just come before the Lord and say, even if 2019 is the absolute worst year of my life, even if the things that I've been praying for, even if the, my relationship with my parents, even the things that I've been wanting for so long are not fixed, are not healed, God, that's okay if I can have a deeper relationship with you. That's what it means to drop your conditions. That's what it means to drop all presuppositions. That's what it means to just simply go to the temple, to go before God and say, God, I just want more of you. That's it. You know, the Israelites, they, they relied on King David for God's blessings. They relied on the Ark of the Covenant for the presence of God. But their faith, it was so up and down. It was so up and down. They were on fire for the Lord one day, and then the next day they cursed him. So at the end of verse 5, David, he looks out to the people, and he says this in desperation. He says, is there anyone who can do this? Is there anyone who willingly will give of themselves just for a moment with God? Is there anyone? And you see, he knows that this is an impossible task for the Israelites. He knows that this is an impossible task for us because we are full of sin. And so for us, we understand this. We understand how good the presence of God is, and yet we continually turn towards other things. We continually turn towards his results and the things that he can give us instead of the giver of life. And yet, under David's lineage, there was a man who was able to accomplish this. And it wasn't King Solomon. 
It was a man who lived perfectly, who called himself the temple of God. Jesus was the only man who completely loved the Lord fully with all of his heart. Not for his things, not for the results, but simply for his utter devotion to the Lord. He earned the presence of God. And yet at the end of his life, God forsake him. My God, my God, why did you forsake me? The man who who deserved God's presence was left out of it. And the reason was because of what Paul said in Galatians. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We're able to step freely and experience the goodness of who God is. And we're able to do what we're meant to do because Jesus gave himself for us. He gave up God's presence so that we could have his presence. So my brothers and sisters, my church, more than anything, more than anything, this is what I'm going to be praying for you. And this is why I hope that you will be praying as well as we go into 2019. That is not about the things that we can have. It's not about the things that we can receive. But God, I just want you. I want to go to a whole new experience with you. I want a new relationship with you. I want to experience you in a deeper way that I've never experienced before because it's only through his experience that your life will change. It's only through his experience that your life will be transformed. His miracles, his things, those things are good and they will satisfy you if only for a moment. But the thing that will give you everlasting change, the only thing that will give you everlasting hope is his presence and his presence alone. And once you experience that, your life will never, ever be the same. And so that is my prayer for you. And as we go into 2019, I pray and I hope that that is your prayer, number one, first of all. And everything else will be secondary. You know, Dwight D. Eisenhower, his successor was a man named John F. Kennedy. He created the Peace Corps. He navigated the Cuban Missile Crisis during the height of the Cold War. He was the author of the eventual Civil Rights Act of 1964. He was a man who was young and inexperienced. Before he became president, JFK, he wrote a book called Profiles in Courage. It went on to win the Pulitzer Prize, and it was a really simple book. It was a series of eight short stories of senators who defied the opinions of their party and did what they believed was right. In the beginning of the book, JFK, he says this, We shall need compromises in the days ahead, to be sure. But we should never compromise our principles. We can compromise our political positions. We can compromise these other things. But we cannot compromise ourselves. We can resolve the clash of interests without conceding our ideals. As we go into 2019, there's going to be a lot of compromises that you're going to have to make. But my prayer and my hope is that we would not compromise on what is most important. There is nothing better than God. And the successes of this world, those are good 
but those are fleeting, brothers and sisters. They will only last for a moment. The one thing that you need, the one thing that is our last desire, the one thing that was David's last desire on his deathbed was that we would experience God. Amen? Let's pray. God, as we go into this 2019 year, I pray that you would speak to us in a, in a clear and direct way. It's, it's not about the things that we can get from you, but God, it's just you. And I pray, Lord, that you would stir something in our hearts right now, that we would not see the people around us, not see the pastors and the teachers and, and this building as something supernatural or something special, but God, we would just rely completely and solely upon you. Help us to understand that. God, I, I pray that our last desire, our last hope as we go into this new year is to say, God, I want to experience your presence. I want more of you. And if I have more of you, then you know what? 2019 can be the worst year of my life, but that's okay because you are worth it. Because you will sustain me. Because you are the one that changes my life. You are the one that will change me forevermore. And so, God, I, I trust in you. And so for us, let's just take a few minutes is that your prayer as we head into this new year? Is that your hope? If it's not, take this time now to pray, to redirect your heart, to redirect your mind. Let's pray.